0: Welcome back to the Hemingway List, the podcast where we do things excellently. What are we talking about here? Oops, I forgot to open the page that I need in order to do the podcast that I am currently doing. And what I'm doing now is stalling while I open it. We're talking about Chapter 7 of Of Human Bondage. That's what we're doing. Are there any redeeming qualities to this vicar? He seems like a right sod. The final line was sweet. Acoustic Eel says, related to the egg, I'm guessing raw, in a glass of sherry. And hey, can I just say, thank you for bringing it back around to egg talk. Um, yeah, appreciate that. Uh, in a glass of sherry is the Dutch drink advocaat. It's an egg-based liqueur, and the name likely derives from the Dutch word for lawyer. The idea was that lawyers need to talk for long stretches of time, and the Egg yolk helps lube up the throat to facilitate that. Vickers need to talk for a long time too on Sundays. So maybe he borrowed the idea from them. There you go. I can't believe how much of this book we have spent talking about eggs. Yeah, I agree, Acoustic Eels, but I'm not mad at it. Advocat, here we go, I'm having a little look at it. Oh, it comes pre mixed with like with the egg in it. Is that or do you add an egg when you when you have it? Looks eggy to me. Okay, there you go. Um, Swim said the mum, she said, Dickens drank a raw egg in in sherry. During his American reading tour, would drink a glass of sherry with an egg beaten into it during intermission, and this seemed to give him enough energy to get through the second half of the readings, which taxed him greatly. I imagine it would give you a bit of an energy boost, too, and lube up that throat. Um, Here's the recipe for a sherry flip. Two ounces of Oloroso sherry... Half an ounce of simple syrup, water and sugar. One egg. Garnish is grated mutt, nut, uh, nutmeg. And glassware is a wine glass. Add all the ingredients to a shaker without ice. Shake vigorously. 30 seconds. Add ice. Shake for another 30 seconds. Straight into a small wine glass. Grate fresh nutmeg over the top. Well, there you go. Uh, let's keep up the good egg details, people. I like that. And I like that we've found out why he had... A raw egg in sherry and it's an actual thing. I found it really funny in this chapter when he was like, got angry that he hadn't had an egg yet and he was like there's two women in this house and I haven't had an egg <laughs> something along those lines it's just like, oh what a time to be alive, just like how am I how am I eggless right now when I live with two women <laughs> and then the women are just like good point We better get you that egg. Jeez, what a weird time it was. I need adjust my microphone here. It's all twisted up. I'm... Nope. Hang on. I made it worse. There we go. I am Norwegian said, well, at least Philip seems to be warming to the vicar and to the servant girl, the two worst characters so far. You reckon? The ser- I don't know much about the servant girl. Fix the blue said, I personally didn't see Mary Ann, servant girl, as one of the worst characters. I'm curious to know what it is that made you feel this way about her. i Norwegian, has answered, saying, While she's not done anything too bad yet, I did get the impression that she tried to get away with doing the bare minimum, reacting to any amount of work as an impossibility. Fair call, yeah? Now that you say it, I can... Kind of see that. Although I, I don't really feel like I know much about her character at all at this point. Fix the Blue said, yay, some fuzzy feelings. Oh, and also, we've surely got to count that doctor from chapter one as one of the worst characters so far, right? He was a shocker. Fix the Blue said, yay, some fuzzy feelings. Mary Ann seems to have grown fond of Philip quite quickly. For all the Vickers' flaws, Philip seems to be doing okay after all. I agree with the user from yesterday who said that they could foresee boarding school for Philip, but wait, would Mr. Carey actually spend that kind of money on the boy when he can continue getting a crappy free education at home, I wonder? Yeah, I thought that his inheritance would be sort of, you know, it's a lot of money, right? And surely they're putting that towards his schooling, you well, we don't know, but otherwise, why are they so worried that it's going to not be enough? You know, because what it's not—he's not been that expensive to look after so far. Like a couple of egg tops. um You're not going to spend two hundred fifty thousand or whatever the equivalent was on two egg tops. Uh, depending on how big the egg tops are, of course, but I'm assuming they're not two hundred fifty thousand dollar egg tops. Amazing, Larry said. As far as the communion goes, I wonder if Mr. Carey and Mr. Graves donate a shilling each week, or if they take it back and reuse it. I had the exact same thought when they said that there's two shillings in there from each of them. I thought, are they the dummy ones that they put in and then take back at the end to sort of get the ball rolling? You know, when you've got a collection tin or, or you know, a, a, a donation jar or whatever, you always put a couple of dollars in there to make it look like, yep, yeah, this is the thing to do, people. Chuck in a big old $50 note. Laura Wystitch said, this chapter was def- was different. Yes, the vicar still has no redeeming qualities, but this line, at first he was shy with his uncle, but little by little grew used to him and he would slip his hand in his uncle's and walk more easily for the feeling of protection. And this one, she kissed him after she tucked him up and he began to love her. Were really quite sweet. Yep. I felt that too. Those were two standout lines where I thought, you know, maybe they are a bit stingy. Maybe they are a bit strict. And the vicar, you know, he's definitely ruling the roost with a bit of an iron fist. But, you know, maybe they're not mistreating him. And if Philip, is that the kid's name? Yeah, Philip is, um, you know, growing fond of them. That means they're not being too mean to him. and, And that's a good thing. All right, let us now continue our reading with, what are we up to, chapter eight. Chapter eight already, we're flying through this book, aren't we? Philip led always the solitary life of an only child, and his loneliness at the vicarage was no greater than it had been when his mother lived. He made friends with Mary Ann, she was a chubby little person of 35, the daughter of a fisherman, and had come to the vicarage at eighteen. It was her first place, and she had no intention of leaving it, and she held a possible marriage as a rod over the timid heads of the master and mistress. Her father and mother lived in a little house off Harbour Street, and she went to see them on her evenings out. Her stories of the sea touched Philip's imagination, and the narrow alleys around the harbour grew rich with the romance which his young fancy lent them. One evening he asked whether he might go home with her and his but his aunt was afraid that she might catch something and his uncle said that evil communications corrupted good manners he disliked the fisher folk who were rough uncouth and went to chapel but philip was more comfortable in the kitchen than in the dining room and whenever he could he took his toys and played there his aunt was not sorry she did not like disorder and though she recognized that boys must be expected to be untidy, she preferred that he would make a mess in the kitchen. If he fidgeted, his uncle was apt to grow restless and say it was high time he went to school. Mrs. Carey thought Philip very young for this, and her heart went out to the motherless child, but her attempts to gain his affection were awkward, and the boy, feeling shy, received her demonstrations with so much sullenness that she was mortified. Sometimes she heard his shrill voice raised in laughter in the kitchen, but when she went in, he grew suddenly silent, and he flushed it darkly when Mary Ann explained the joke. Mrs. Carey could not see anything amusing in what she heard, and she smiled with constraint. He seems happier with Mary Ann than with us, William, she said, when she returned to her sewing. One can see he's been very badly brought up. He wants licking into shape. On the second Sunday after Philip arrived, an unlucky incident occurred. Mr. Carey had retired as usual after dinner for a little snooze in the drawing room, but he was in an irritable mood and could not sleep. Josiah Graves that morning had objected strongly to some candlesticks with which they, the vicar had adorned the altar. He had bought them second-hand in Turk and Berry, and he thought they looked very well. But Josiah Graves said they were poppish. This was a taunt that always aroused the vicar, he had been at Oxford during the mo- the movement which ended in the succession from the established Church of Edward Manning, and he felt a certain sympathy for the Church of Rome. He would willingly have made the service more ornate than had been usual in the low church parish of Blackstable, and his secret soul in his secret soul he yearned for processions and lighted candles. He drew the line at incense he hated the word Protestant he called himself a Catholic. He was accustomed to say that papists required an epithet. that were epi, epithet. They were Roman Catholic, but the Church of England was Catholic in the best, the fullest, and the noblest sense of the term. He was pleased to think that his shaven face gave him the look of a priest, and in his youth he had possessed an ascetic air, which added to the impression. He often related that on one of his holidays in Boulogne, one of those holidays upon which his wife, for economy's sake, did not accompany him. When he was sitting in a church, the Cure had come up to him and invited him to preach a sermon. He dismissed his curates when they married, having decided views on the celibacy of the unbeneficied clergy. But when, at an election, the Liberals had written on his garden fence, In large blue letters, this way to Rome, he had been very angry and threatened to prosecute the leaders of the Liberal Party in Blackstable. He made up his mind now that nothing Josiah Graves said would induce him to remove the candlesticks from the altar, and he muttered Bismarck to himself once or twice irritably. Suddenly he heard an unexpected noise. He pulled the handkerchief off his face, got up from the sofa on which he was lying, and went into the dining room. Philip was seated on the table. With all his bricks around him, he had built a monstrous castle and some defect in the foundation had just brought the structure down in noisy ruin. What are you doing with those bricks, Philip? You know you're not allowed to play games on Sunday. Philip stared at him for a moment with frightened eyes and, as his habit was, flushed deeply. I always used to play at home, he answered. I am sure your dear mamma never allowed you to do such a wicked thing as that. Philip did not know it was wicked, but if it was, he did not wish it to be supposed that his mother had consented to it. He hung his head down and did not answer. Don't you know it's very, very wicked to play on Sunday? What do you suppose it's called the day of rest for? You're going to church tonight, and how can you face your maker when you've been breaking one of his laws in the afternoon? Mr. Kerry told him to put the bricks away at once and stood over him while Philip did so. You're a very naughty boy, he repeated. Think of the grief you're causing your poor mother in heaven. Philip felt inclined to cry, but he had an instinctive disinclination to letting other people see his tears. He clenched his teeth to prevent the sobs from escaping. Mr. Carey sat down in his armchair and began to turn over the pages of a book. Philip stood at a window. The vicarage was set back from the high road to Turkenbury and from the dining room one saw a semicircular strip of lawn, and then as far as the horizon, green fields. Sheep were grazing in them. The sky was forlorn, and grey Philip felt infinitely unhappy. Presently, Marianne came in to lay the tea, and Aunt Louisa descended the stairs. Have you had a nice little nap, William? she asked. No, he answered. Philip made so much noise that I couldn't sleep a wink. This was not quite accurate, for he had been kept awake by his own thoughts, and Philip, listening sullenly, reflected that he had only made a noise once, and there was no reason why his uncle should not have slept before or after. When Mrs. Carey asked for an explanation, the vicar narrated the facts. He hasn't even said he was sorry, he finished. No, oh, Philip, I'm sure you're sorry, said Mrs. Carey, anxious that the child should s- not seem wickeder to his uncle than need be. Philip did not reply. He went on munching his bread and butter. He did not know what power it was in him that prevented him from making any expression of regret. He felt his ears tingling. He was a little inclined to cry, but no word would issue from his lips. You didn't make it worse by sulking, said Mr. Carey. Tea was finished in silence. Mrs. Carey looked at Philip surreptitiously now and then, but the vicar elaborately ignored him. When Philip saw his uncle go upstairs to get ready for church, he went into the hall and got his hat and coat. But when the vicar came downstairs and saw him, he said, "'I don't wish you to go to church tonight, Philip. "'I don't think you're in a proper frame of mind to enter the house of God.'" Philip did not say a word. He felt it was a deep humiliation that was placed upon him and his cheeks reddened. He stood silently watching his uncle put on his broad hat and his voluminous cloak. "'Mrs. Carey, as usual,' went to the door to see him off. Then she turned to Philip. Never mind, Philip, you won't be a naughty boy next Sunday, will you? And then your uncle will take you to church with him in the evening. She took off his hat and coat and led him into the dining room. Shall I read the service? Shall you and I read the service together, Philip, and we'll sing the hymns at the harmonium? Would you like that? Philip shook his head decidedly. Mrs. Carey was taken aback. If he would not read the evening service with her, she did not know what to do with him. "'Then what would you like to do until your uncle comes back?' she asked, helplessly. Philip broke his silence at last. "'I want to be left alone,' he said. "'Philip, how can you say anything so unkind? Don't you know that your uncle and I only want your good? Don't you love me at all?' "'I hate you. I wish you was dead.' Mrs. Carey gasped. He said the words so savagely that it gave her quite a start. She had nothing to say. She sat down in her husband's chair, and as she thought of her desire to love the friendliness friendless, crippled boy, and her eager wish that he should love her, she was a barren woman, and even though it was clearly God's will that she would be childless, she could scarcely bear to look at children at little to look at little children sometimes, her uh, heart ached so. The tears rose to her eyes and one by one slowly rolled down her cheeks. Philip watched her in amazement. She took out her handkerchief and now she cried without restraint. Suddenly Philip realized that she was crying because of what he had said, and he was sorry. He went up to her silently and kissed her. It was the first kiss he had ever given her without being asked, and the poor lady so small in her black satin shriveled up and sallow with her funny corkscrew curls, took the little boy on her lap and put her arms around him and wept as though her heart would break. But her tears were partly tears of happiness, for she felt that the strangeness between them was gone. She loved him now with a new love, because he had made her suffer. All right, there we go. Another chapter down. Nice chapter. I liked that very much. Have your say over at the Hemingway List subreddit and um, yeah see you tomorrow thanks for listening